Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Dominic Wykenath. Dominic is the Greens candidate for Wentworth. He has served almost 20 years on the local Waverley Council. Dominic, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, mate. Uh, this election's a big election. Yes, it's the Wentworth by-election, and it's come about because the former Prime Minister has resigned from his electorate of Wentworth. So now the community of Wentworth is in the process of listening to a range of at least 16 candidates and then choosing which of those candidates will be the next federal government representative for the community of Wentworth in the Commonwealth Parliament. You're representing the the Greens. You've been with the Greens for a long time now. Yes, I've been with the Greens for more than 20 years. The 20 years that just mentioned has been as a elected Greens councillor, but I've been active with the Greens party in New South Wales since before 1999. I began my involvement, I think, around about the time when uh, Mr John Howard was the former Prime Minister of Australia and in the elections where he was first elected and then re-elected. So since about that time, I've been involved through community, environmental, heritage, local government organisations and with the Greens as a political party and then becoming an elected representative for the Greens in 1999, September 1999 at Waverley Council for the Bondi Ward electorate. Okay, and have you found that in that time that uh, what it means to be a, a member of the Greens Party has, has shifted in the public discourse? Yes, I've been a member from that time and I can see that the Greens have first of all increased in the number of elected representatives within the party and also those representatives have been elected across all tiers of Australian political systems from local, state to federal. And there's also been a different reception to the Greens from when the party was initially formed, so that now one of the major issues that the Greens have always been advocates for which is about eco-sustainability in the form of climate change is not only a, a pressing local, state and federal issue, but with the recent release of a report from an organisation connected with the United Nations it's called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the global need to take some action about climate change has become more dire. And I think the Greens, with their policies over decades, have now reached the point of 
recognition where a lot of what Greens wanted to say about climate change and eco-sustainability has been verified by an organisation <clears throat> of United Nations and international scientists. Mm. Well, there's still, it's like they say, there's uh, um, nothing like a, a good idea whose time has come. Yes. So yeah. uh, it's, it's, uh, the Greens have been having a good idea for 20 years and now everyone else is sort of catching up. Yeah. So this is, okay, this is a, an interesting place to be playing, um, to be an interesting position to be contesting, Wentworth, being that the uh, Prime Minister just was, uh, you know, booted out and then left the electorate. And, and left the country. And left the country. What's, um, is that, does that significance uh, play a big part of why you're running here or is it more on a local level for you? Oh, no, I just... Um, because I've had this experience with local and obviously from the local government level having to react to state and federal policy on the representations of the members of my local community and, and those who are more formally constituents, I just see that there's been almost a trail of disregard and abandonment of the community at local, state and federal level by a series of successive governments. So if I can give some examples of that. At local government level in the municipality of Waverley, there's just been a very public action by the community members to save the Bondi Pavilion, which people considered as their central community hub and cultural centre, from being commercialised and privatised for what was potentially restaurant space uh, with the removal of um, an established theatre and other community facilities, community cultural facilities. And it just seemed that the... uh, uh, Liberal government at local level wasn't listening to the community and I think it was a factor in the fact that we have now changed in numbers in Waverley Council. The Liberals do not have the numbers anymore and the uh, Liberal agenda for the Bonner Pavilion has stopped and it's been now supported as a community cultural centre by the current Waverley Council. Okay, well, excuse my ignorance here, I think I totally missed the boat on this. They were going to sell off the Bondi Pavilion? They were going to commercialise it. Like, it's on, it's crown land, so it's public property. Mm. And they had a plan to take the theatre out, which is a public theatre, public performance space. And then the potential was that that would become a restaurant space on the first floor of the Bondi Pavilion. Yeah. And that then would um, spill over into a more commercial operation at the Bondi Pavilion rather than it being maintained as a community cultural centre. Right, as a public good. Yeah. Wow. And uh, But in the end, the, um, the count, on a council level, yeah, the numbers shifted. Yeah, the numbers shifted because it was a, a big issue in the last local government election, which was only in September 2017, so um, just 12 months or so ago. And it was a big issue, along with a lot of other issues, 
um, and it turned the numbers from being a Liberal-led mayoralty on Waverley Council to one now where the mayor is from the Labor Party and I as one of the Greens councillors and the deputy mayor of Waverley Council at the moment. The other issue that I feel showed a lack of um, appreciation of what the community wanted was the forced amalgamation process that the Liberal state government wanted to force onto local councils to like have... Like how several councils were going to come together? Yeah. So the ones um, that were ticked for merger in our area were Wallara Council, Waverley Council and Randwick. But fortunately, the Wallara Council, which is a Liberal-led uh, council, um, took the state government to court, to the High Court, and delayed that process long enough for there to be a change in Premier at the New South Wales government level. And the current Premier of New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian, had, before she was elected Premier, or before she was um, nominated Premier, made an indication that if she became Premier, then she would start to pull back on the agenda to merge councils forcibly. Right. So... And has that happened? Yeah, that's happened now. So now um, Waverley Council, which has like a 160-year history as a local municipality, along with Randwick, which is a similar, a similar number of years, and Wallara, those councils will now remain separate and not be forcibly merged. Right. So that uh, was an, an issue where I believe the state government liberal policy was trying to force something unwanted upon the people of this area of the eastern suburbs. And just the behaviour at federal level, the way that the former Prime Minister was ousted from office, the uh, um, numbers games about who would be Prime Minister and the policies at the time, and it just seemed to happen at a time when it looked like the former Prime Minister, Mr Malcolm Turnbull, might have been taking a brave step in relation to the National Energy Guarantee. That was the main yeah. issue just before his demise. And it's been almost the, the same issue that has led to a number of Prime Ministers for Australia being ousted. So. There was at one time where we had five Prime Ministers in five years and given that an elected term is three years, in the time we're up to now, no Prime Minister in that time has been allowed to see out a full three-year elected term. So that kind of behaviour needs to change and it's increased my motivation to be a candidate in the Wentworth by-election. Yeah, it, it reminds me of um, something, I think it was uh, Gibbon wrote about the Roman about the Roman Empire that although technically uh, your being Caesar was for life, only a handful of Caesars ever actually you know died peacefully in their beds. Yeah. It's just constant backstabbing all the way down. Yeah, yeah. So so this this sort of these sort of dynamics that we're seeing on the federal level, like what's 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 causing them and how can that change? Well, I think it has to change because this Wentworth by-election has to be basically the climate by-election. So climate change is should be the main issue. We need to have climate democracy, so we need to undo the stranglehold on politics that comes from that process of political donation, which then 
um, is a way to influence government policy, especially in relation to large corporations involved in the resource and mining extractive industry uh, corporations. They seem to have uh, a, an over-influence on where public policy should be moving, especially in relation to transi uh, transitioning from coal to 100% renewable energy. And given that the government only has a slim majority, this seat, if it changes from being a Liberal controlled seat, will change the character of government and it will mean that there will either be a minority government or there might be a move to put a vote of no confidence in the current government and that would then lead to a full general election for all of the federal seats across Australia. So a lot of it is hinging on this? Yes. Um, I think people are becoming aware that it is a very important by-election and it actually, to my mind, because it's being called the climate change by-election and the climate democracy election, it actually sets up where Australia will go with its policy on climate change. And because those issues are so dire now, it actually sets up a context where Australia can be a world leader in taking firm, decisive climate change action if this seat changes and there is then the political will of the parliament to start to truly transition and be uh, away from the influence of the coal lobby and associated lobbyists and move to transitional renewable energy, which is more sustainable for the future and more sustainable for the planet. Hmm. That would be something, huh? Yeah, I hope. <laughs> you're... Um uh, you you spent you said before this by election you've served in local council for what nineteen years now almost yeah. twenty years yeah that that must have been something how did how did you originally get involved in that it was I consider myself to be an accidental politician even if that that term fits hmm. because I was involved as I said with um, elections of uh, Mr John Howard as the uh, former Prime Minister. So I was living in the, uh, what was it called, the Lane Cove National Park. So there's a caravan park there where you're allowed to have car blocks so you can live out of a car on a caravan park. So I was living in my car in the middle of a national park and that was in the electorate of Benelong, which is... John, Mr. John Howard's former electorate. And um, I tried to run against him as a candidate, but because I was living on the dole, on the unemployment benefit, I didn't have enough money to make what was the nomination fee at the time. The uh, Australian Electoral Commission requires people who want to run as candidates to lodge a, a nomination fee. So I couldn't afford that from the unemployment benefit. So I decided instead to just help parties that I thought were um, running on policies that were similar to some of the perspectives that I held. So I helped the um, Unity Party, which was a party that had grown up in 
reaction to Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party uh, and I helped um, the Greens Party and it was during that uh, election where Mr Howard was elected that um, I was asked to consider joining the Greens and so that was what brought me to the Bondi area where I helping people with issues raised about the Bondi beach being covered by an Olympic volleyball stadium and because of my cultural heritage and working with native title issues I said that there were native title issues to consider in that context so people asked me to come and speak at rallies about that issue at Bondi Beach and during that time I learned that the incumbent local Greens councillor was not going to run again in the next local government election and so people asked was there anyone who wanted to put their hand up to be a Greens candidate at the Bondi Ward local council level. When they asked the first time I didn't put my hand up because I thought people would, who were known in the area and had been with the Greens probably longer than I had would <coughs> nominate for that. So no one nominated on the first call. So they said, oh, we'll ask again. So I thought on the second call, I'll put my hand up. And when I do, other people will see that and they'll put their hand up as well. Mm -hmm. And more than likely, the people who are more longer term Greens and well known, they will get the candidacy. So I put my hand up, but what I thought would happen didn't happen. So mine was the only hand up. So I was the candidate. So I went into that first election thinking, um, I'm only new in the Greens. I have some experience with community organisations in local government, but I've never really been that close to local government enough to be um, probably considered a uh, successful candidate. But I was elected mm. and I've been here since then, since September 1999. It's uh, October. Ah, thank you. You you were talking about the way that your heritage um, worked together with the argument for, for local land title on uh, in regards to the Bondi Beach Volleyball Court. That was for the 2000 Olympics. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about your heritage? So my heritage is um, I use the acronym TI. So I say I'm a, a TI grandfather of a Murray and Yorta Yorta family. So... TI is Thursday Island, and Thursday Island is the Torres Strait. Mm -hmm. So my father comes from the Torres Strait. Um, I'm born on Yuabara country in Mackay, so I'm born on the mainland. My mother is born on the mainland, but her heritage is what's called South Sea, South Sea Islander. And some of that heritage goes back to the time when Queensland and the uh, coastal parts of New South Wales near the Queensland border were used as sugarcane farms and there was a type of slavery and indentured labour called blackbirding and a lot of those people were brought to Australia from Pacific Islands to work in sugarcane fields. So that's the other part of my heritage. What was it called, sorry, black, black? Blackbirding. Blackbirding? Yeah. Like a blackbird? Yeah, I don't know what, I, what the birding part of it is, what the relationship, but it's basically was a term that was associated 
maybe it was a term that was more palatable to people than saying slavery. Right. So okay. they just gave it this this name, black burning. It's like a, a, a nonsense word to cover up the truth. Yeah. 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 I, well, that, um, did you, when you were growing up, did you feel that being a, a First Nation member was something political for you or did that come later? Uh, I had a few experiences at school when I was growing up that sort of made me think about the broader politics of some of those issues. But it wasn't really until I came to Sydney in my teenage years that I became more politicised about First Nation, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander issues. So I suppose um, my hometown gave me um, some cultural background and some appreciation of some of the issues that we had to deal with in our town. But I think coming to Sydney was really where the more um, urban black politics of my experience were formed. And, and on a cultural side, uh, do you feel like you um, learned more culturally from, from your father's side or from your mother's side? Um, it was kind of a mixture, but I suppose it was more towards the Torres Strait side. Mm-hmm. Um, so recently I've been involved in some of those continuing cultural ceremonies that we have associated with what we call island custom, so Torres Strait Island cultural customs. You mentioned before off mic uh, participating in a tombstone ceremony recently. Yeah, so recently our family had a tombstone ceremony. What that is is, say, 12 months or sometimes longer after a significant elder has passed on, we come back to the gravesite as a family and um, we will place a, a gravestone or headstone, a tombstone on the grave and there'll be like a, a, a short ceremony where we remember our elder, in this case, um, our family uncle. Uh, and then in the afternoon on that day into the evening, we will have what's called a feasting. So we'll go back to a central location and we'll have traditional foods and um, basically have cultural dancing and the family will get together and the elders will be um, seated at an elders table um, and the night will usually end with cultural dancing in respect of the past elder and the elders who are still with us on the head table. Right. And and during that 12 months before the tombstone in, there are limitations on... Yeah, it varies from community to community, and it's not only a Torres Strait custom, it's also a custom in Aboriginal communities. So some of the custom is that you don't speak the known name of the person that's sort of in some Aboriginal communities, or you just, just take time to grieve, I suppose, grieve over the loss of the elder, and then... Uh, you know, after 12 months, it's felt that that's um, happened enough to go to the, the next stage, which is respecting their gravesite with um, a tombstone. Right. It's, it's very interesting because um, it reminds me a lot of, of uh, Jewish practice around death as well. We also have um, a year gap 
like 11 months between uh, someone's death and burial and when we place a tombstone oh. on the gravesite. And also, yeah, and also the, um, that we, I mean, we can talk, we talk about the dead during that time, yeah. but um, there's, a, there's a Jewish practice to, uh, um, to uh, request of, of one's ancestors to intercede on one's behalf in, in heaven, and that's not done for the first year. Ah, okay. That's specifically avoided. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So there's some, some similarity in the, yeah, in the custom. Quite striking there. Uh-huh. Very interesting to me. I didn't know that. Do you feel like um, there's a, there's a uh, resurgence of some of these customs and rituals? Yeah, I think they're um, in the broader context of what people are calling cultural revival and cultural maintenance. There's um, a revival of older languages that um, are being researched again to bring back and be taught to the younger generations um, because we have lost a lot of language and a lot of languages are not fluently spoken as they would have been. Yeah. So it's all part of language revival and with that comes probably the dance and those sorts of cultural expressions. They are also being revived and practised more. Do you enjoy the dances a lot yourself? Yeah, look, I'm not a good dancer because ah. of my, what I said, my political, my urban um, experience. Um, my cousins are the ex- more expert in the dancing and some of those sorts of customs. I suppose because I've chosen to concentrate on like modern city politics, I'm not as well versed in those sorts of things as my cousins are. Sure. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> you enjoy it when you get the chance? Yeah, like, you know, I appreciate the skill and the whole cultural meaning of what happens when uh, dancing is done. And um, there's always more to learn about the stories behind the dancers, you know, where they might get, have come from if they're older dancers. And then, of course, in contemporary times, people are always creating new dance in the style of older um, movements yeah. so it's always good to see the fusion that's happening now with the younger generation in this cultural revival your this um first nations issues first people's issues are part of the greens platform and your platform yeah. for this by-election uh, some of the things you've, you've talked about before are sovereignty and treaties um, ending discriminatory intervention and closing the gap is there a, a sort of a vision you have for what it could look like for that rift to be healed? Or is that something that for you is so fundamental that in some sense the best you can do is the best you can do? I think it's uh, obviously a time, timed process in the way that you politically and socially there needs to be a reversal almost to go back in time to try and reset um, the clock in a way, reset things from say 1770 Mm. when I suppose the experience of First Nations people in Australia became historically impacted by a colonising nation 
So from the time of um, Lieutenant Cook mapping the east coast of Australia and making um, moves to plant the, the English flag on on um, the east coast of Australia and claim that, that land for the Crown of England, that's the time when it starts to become a, a joint, a shared history. So the process to unravel that and given the like deliberate government policies of uh, dispossessing people and uh, disrespecting their land ownership and their lifestyle, um, bringing people into like reserves and missions and even the stolen generation process of taking kids away to try and ed educate them as domestic servants. All that is going to take time to unravel. Um, but the main fundamental step, I think, is to recognise that there needs to be a treaty from sovereign to sovereign. So as long as uh, Australia as a constitution is seen to be what I think is called a constitutional monarchy, mm. there needs to be a process of different Aboriginal mobs, like different language nations, negotiating through their own sovereignty some set of ideals that will see them recognised as First Nations people and then recognising a, a shared context of where the rights that flow from that recognition will create um, a future society and continue uh, an Australian society that's going to be a, a cohesive and inclusive community. Right, because this is something that just across the strait in New Zealand there are treaties between the Crown and the Maori people. Yeah. Would, is, that, is that the sort of thing you're thinking of or is it something different? Well, people who are looking at unravelling that context have looked at different models from all across the world, um, probably because Australia is connected through um, England to the Commonwealth of Nations. Um, the closest example is, as you've just said, in, uh, with the Maori people. And so other examples that have been looked at have been in the Commonwealth of Canada, where you've had um, progressive steps made with agreements with First Nations people between um, like French-speaking communities and the Cana Canadian, um, Canadian communities and um, the First Nations peoples. So all those models are looked at to try and form what would be the best fit for the Australian um, sovereignty situation. Rock on. All right, well, we're uh, just about coming to the end of our time here. Yeah. But okay. If you have uh, a message for people going to the polls on the 20th, okay. what would that be? Oh, look, from my perspective uh, as a uh, Indigenous person, First Nations person, I'm just saying that we want to put those principles into practice. So we want to say that caring for country, which is an expression that people realise in an First Nations context, caring for country is caring for climate. And then from there, it's caring for the community. So we want to take that message to Canberra. We want this Wentworth by-election to be the climate change election for Australia and hopefully allow Australia to show some leadership across the planet about how we transition from 
fossil fuel industries and extractive industries and work with renewables to create a sustainable future, a future that is flawless. Dominic, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.